From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Been doing it via Zoom for the last year and a half since the pandemic took us out of the studio. Usually have a crew here. Usually have my guys. This week I'm flying solo. I think it's the second time ever I've done that. And uh, I'm sorry I don't have my guys. It's always more fun with them. But as an alternative, we've lined up a heck of a slate of guests. I can't talk for two hours. And so I've got friends coming by over the next two hours, logging in, dialing in for a little conversation. We're going to focus today. We're focusing this week on the NFL. We did a CFB college football preview show last week. We're going to do NFL this week. We're giving the the big boys equal time since they're kicking off this weekend. I've got a couple of quick words before we drop into NFL forecast. Uh, One, an article and one more plug. I've plugged him before. I'm going to plug him again. David Leonard, New York Times, does a daily email post. And he just does a great job of kind of plugging away on COVID, chasing down the current beliefs and current misbeliefs. His article from this morning, I think, maybe yesterday, it's great, laying out based on evidence in the U.S., and it only comes in like states, maybe a county, maybe three places This we have evidence enough to say this. What is the risk of getting COVID if you have the vaccine? You have to know how many people are floating around with the vaccine and how many people get it with the vaccine, and we don't have those data very much, but from a few places we do, and the calculation from a couple of them approximates one in 5,000 per day, one in 5,000 per day for average behavior in an average location. Some locations are safer. Some locations are less safe down here in Texas, probably higher than one in 5,000, but it depends on how you live. depends on what you do, whether you mask, how commonly you're out and about, but ballpark one in 5,000. What's the upshot? That's pretty low. That's pretty good. There's a lot of worry about breakthroughs, which is legit. Not many breakthroughs lead into hospitalization, even fewer lead into death, but breakthroughs themselves are relatively rare. We hear about them because there are so many people that are vaccinated. We've got 200 million people vaccinated. Even a very small fraction of them get it. We're going to hear about a lot of breakthroughs. Your risk if you're vaccinated, your average risk, average behavior, average location in the U.S., one in 5,000 per day. That means you got to go almost two months before you rack it up to one in 100. One in 5,000 sounds like the kind of risk that we take all the time without thinking about it much. And there should be some solace in that. First empirical observation we have, a few different places kind of triangulating on one in 5,000. So a little bit of COVID news. College football kicked off this past weekend. Let's do that real quick. What did you take away? Some good slate, some interesting games. If I had to summarize it, and that's all I can do since we got to talk NFL this whole show, if I had to summarize it, I think there's some chance that we have the emergence of some, some challengers, some challengers to the big five, some challengers to the same old, same old. We've been seeing slip into the college playoff really since it began. And at the same time, some cracks, some cracks among the Kings. Clemson didn't look very good. Ohio State pulled it out with, against Minnesota, but showed some dicey defense along the way. Even Oklahoma had to scrap to get by Tulane. Granted, Alabama and Georgia looked pretty stunning, 
but some cracks up top and then a whole ring of folks, a whole ring of folks down below that might make runs. It could be interesting. We all look for a little more variety in college football these days. So who, who's given us the variety? A&M, you couldn't judge much against Kent State, but people expect them to be stout. Cincy looked great. Iowa looked great. UCLA, surprisingly great. Penn State, are they back? They went 0-5 to start last year. They got it done in Madison, Wisconsin. By the way, did you see jump around? Did you see jump around in Madison, Wisconsin? College football's back. It was one of the best moments of the weekend with probably the best tradition in college sports starting the fourth quarter up there. But it was not enough for the Badgers to clip the Nittany Lions. Penn State got it done. They are looking strong. And even my Longhorns had a good open. Too early to say much about them, but there's a handful of folks there that look like they might be able to make a run at that big five. So maybe 2021 is not going to be chalky. We'll see. we got some week two stuff. For example, Iowa State. You only think you aren't interested in Iowa State. It's one of the biggest games of the year and definitely the biggest game of, uh, of week two. All right, that's college football. That's all we're going to give you, Mr. College Football. We've got to talk National Football League. We've got almost two hours to do so. We've got a line up of National Football League stars, analysts, observers, football cognoscenti, friends of the show, dropping by to visit, kicking it off. Laura Rutledge. We're delighted to welcome Laura to the show. First time, we're privileged to have Laura join us. Laura is the host of NFL Live. It's a weekday show, 4 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. She also hosts SEC Nation, came up through the college ranks, still has that show. It's kind of the SEC equivalent of game day and uh, has a unique perspective doing college on Saturdays and NFL the rest of the week. Laura, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. And, I, you know, I'm the one, I'm, I kind of carry the banner for college football, Laura. So I'm delighted to transition to NFL with someone who can appreciate my enthusiasm for college football. What was your experience with week one? What did you make of the weekend? Oh, it was so much fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like last season, even though we were doing college football, it was like every single week, it felt like it was so precarious and maybe it wasn't going to happen or maybe a game was going to get canceled. We were going to deal with so many of the issues that, that, by the way, we are still dealing with in a lot of ways, but just seeing the games back in the way that we remember them all the way back to 2019. And prior to that, I think was really special in a lot of ways and and exciting. Mm -hmm. And then aside from that, some great games. I mean, talk about another dominant outing from Alabama, which my goodness, they continue to keep doing this. We thought, you know, maybe we would see Bryce Young a a little jittery early on and then he comes out there and he was unbelievable. Um, We'll we'll find out if it's more about Alabama or more about Miami, not being ready for the challenge. But either way, I think you see Alabama deserving of that top spot. The Georgia Clemson game was like old school football that, you know, a lot of us who who do appreciate line of scrimmage and defense really enjoyed from that standpoint. And then even as recently as Monday, seeing Ole Miss come out there with that high flying offense and and what they did against Louisville. It it was just a a fantastic opening weekend, um, or at least a full Saturday slate of opening college football that I think gets a lot of us really looking forward to the rest of the season. It's also fun because it, there's, you can speculate and you, and we tend to wildly every direction because for almost every team, we've only seen them play one game. And so we don't know. We don't know whether Alabama is even better than expected or whether Miami's not what we thought. 
You know, is Ohio State as sketchy on defense as we think, or is Minnesota got a little more going on than we thought? You just don't know. So we've got one more week to kind of, you know, bounce it around before we start getting some more evidence. I do want to get your opinion real quick on Georgia. Is what, what chances do you think they have of finally getting over the hump, the Alabama hump this year? I think their chances are are relatively strong. But what I would say is that after watching Alabama's offense, and, and like you said so well, uh, we don't know if that has to do with Miami in some ways, but still Alabama's offense is clicking like nobody's business. I mean, it's out of control. And, and the element of being able to know that you've got a dual threat quarterback who's also a threat to run just makes it so hard to defend. So if you're talking about Georgia versus Alabama, which at this point I think we likely see in the SEC championship game, yeah. Georgia's going to make it a big challenge. The, the thing about Georgia that is scary for anybody who's going to face them is not only are they just so stout in the lines of scrimmage, which it, that's how you're going to win and lose games if, if you've got physicality up front on both sides, but I think they also play a brand of football that is really not seen elsewhere. So it's not like you right. can say, oh, all right, we, we've already seen this team or that team, so that prepared us for Georgia. No, th- they are playing uh, a football that we don't see a lot of times, not only in college, but also in the NFL. A lot of these right. teams have, have turned things into much more of a, a spread-out, high-flying offensive attack. A lot of these defenses are built to defend that as opposed to just physical ground-and-pound football. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I also think, too, JT Daniels, the Georgia quarterback, is going to get even more comfortable. Their receiver is yep. going to get a little bit more proven throughout the season, too. So by the time they see Alabama, if they could stay healthy, uh, that that's, man, that's a game that <laughs> of two different styles. It could be really, really fun. Well, looking forward to it. And Laura, maybe we can talk more college football down the road. Um, I'm a long, I'm a longhorn, you know, by, by family tradition, I'm born and bred, and I'm fascinated by their move to the SEC coming up. So we'll catch you down the road on that. Let's talk about NFL. You've got this unique perspective as you as you do shift gears this week from just having done that great week one in college football to getting ready for week one of the NFL, how, how do these two sports sit next to each other for you? Like, what do you what differences do you feel? What differences do you see between the two? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of differences in in even just the way that. Um, players are handled the way that people are are talked about in both uh, sports. I mean, it's it's totally different in the college level, but we are seeing, I think, more similarities at this point than differences, you know, especially with NIL coming to the the front of everything and players being compensated at the college level. It's it's more of a professional sport than it has been before. So a lot of crossover there from the NFL standpoint. And I think for me, you know, having covered college football for all this time, it's an easy transition to the NFL because so many of these players I covered right. when they were in college or, or even right. back when they were in high school uh, at the beginning of my career and the beginnings of, of theirs, which is pretty cool actually to kind of watch them grow up as as I've grown up myself in a, a few ways. I, I think Laura, too, give us give us an example of somebody that you actually knew a little bit about oh, back man, when you were being recruited so, in high school. I, I literally drove to Hueytown High School where Jameis Winston played quarterback and safety and was also their kicker. <laughs> so <laughs> watching those games uh, is something that I'll never forget. I mean, Derek wow. Henry uh, at a Yuli High School in Florida. I, so many of these, Amari Cooper. I, I went to Amari Cooper's, uh, one of his early seven-on-seven camps when not that many teams were recruiting him. And Alabama had gotten an early beat on him. He ended up going to Alabama, of course, 
and uh, now having success with the Cowboys, but he wasn't a well-known commodity and we're out there watching him. I'm like, who is that kid? He's unbelievable. Really? Yeah. Um, and, and so anyway, those, those are just a few examples, but there's a lot of these guys that I've covered for years and, you know, kind of know their background. So that's, that's been a, a nice transition for me just to be able to watch him at this next level. And, you know, the other thing too, is I think, we're seeing a lot of transition when it comes to scheme from the college ranks to mm-hmm. the NFL ranks. A lot mm-hmm. of these offensive mm-hmm. schemes, especially are becoming more and more similar. And it's why you're mm-hmm. seeing, you know, some of the quarterbacks that have been drafted really early in recent years, you know, super talented may not have been given that chance in prior years where we just thought, Oh, quarterbacks are supposed to look a certain way in the NFL. They're supposed to be statues in the pocket in a lot of ways, even though most of those guys would say, well, I wasn't a statue in the pocket, but you know what I mean? Um, and, and now we're seeing a, a whole new age of offense ushered in. And I, I just think that's been really neat to watch that transition. A lot of those offenses, you know, kind of beginning at the college level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a, it is a fascinating trend, isn't it? And you even hear some snark from some of the football players on teams that aren't doing that. They're kind of running down the high school offenses that happen to be taking over the league. Um, it's a losing cause guys. It's definitely, it's definitely the way things are going. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what you think of, about the world of analytics and how you, where you find value in analytics. And, and maybe we could even talk a little bit about what you wish the analytics community would do better. You are hosting the Megacast this week one, my understanding is anyway, the ESPN's Megacast Monday Night Football, which has, you know, all kinds of, you know, bells and whistles going on. So you're kind of in the middle of this stuff. You have an interesting perspective for us. We're always wondering what can be done better. Like what do non-analysts find useful from the analytics community? What can we do better? That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm uh, such a fan of analytics that I probably get in the weeds a little bit too much. Sometimes <laughs> people are like, wait a second, you know, um, but Laura, I just come talk deep. to us. You can come hang out with us anytime. There are Let's weeds do it. too deep. I love it. Uh, you know, Mina Kimes on NFL Live, one of our analysts, is I think she's done an incredible job of making the analytics make sense so mm-hmm. that it's not just jargon to people where they say, oh, that sounds like a cool stat, but what does it actually mean? I mean, mm-hmm. I'll give you one example of a stat that I love that we use a lot. It's it's pass rush win rate, which mm-hmm. you know basically mm-hmm. is saying, all right, so the offensive line has got to hold their block for two and a half seconds or longer for it to even count. But how often do they do that? And it's that's a that's an easy one, but simplified. You say, all right, that shows you why your quarterback's going to be good, right? You're buying him time to throw, and and mm-hmm. I think just being able to identify those touch points for people via analytics to make it all make sense in a way that. Uh, makes the makes a fan feel smarter. First of all, that's that's important. Fans kind of just what at this day and age, there's so many inf- pieces of information available to them. They just want to feel smarter and be able to explain something to their friends, or um, you know, make a make a good wager on something based off of those analytics. I think that's where it all ties in. And you know, it's interesting because when it comes to our megacast and what we'll do on Monday Night Football as the the league opens and as Monday Night Football plays its first game, we'll be sort of in the world of analytics mostly, but also in the world of gambling and the the line moving throughout the game and how yeah. that can be affected by the smallest things or sometimes the biggest things. I think that, you know, what I find, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this too, is that a lot of times a fan who cares about analytics is also interested in the line, right? They're interested yeah. in the way those things move throughout the game. For, and so sure. serving that fan is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, I think we learned something about the game as well, because that's a different angle. It's a very precise market-based number that tells us how much things are being moved around. Without that information, we, we might think, oh my God, this huge swing, and now we're just dead, or oh, now we have it for sure. The market tells us whether that's true or not. And so right. over time, we get a little smarter about things, in, in the best cases anyway. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I suppose it doesn't work out <laughs> that way, but you're right. right. Uh, but best case scenario is that you you find something analytically that ends up translating to the other fun that you want to have during the game. And, and you know, it, what, what I think, too, is really cool is finding analytics that apply real time and, and really can explain sort of what's happening, why this offense is functioning so well against the opposing defense, despite right. the adjustments they're making in game. And right. a lot of times the numbers speak to that. So um, it, it's been really fun for me to learn a little bit more about it, but also be amongst people who embrace it as much as I do and, and, and really love it. I mean, we, we sort of feed off of it and it gets us going. Well, it's fun. It's fun to see it evolving some because the, 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 the analytics community is evolving, but you guys on the production side have a lot to say about what makes it, you know, what becomes popular, what do people talk about? It's this it's this interaction between the community, the fans, and you guys are right in between. You play a pretty important role. We talk about, for example, in soccer, one of the reasons analytics has had a harder time getting going is that a lot of the production crew just does, isn't interested, doesn't want to do it. And it feels like you guys are playing an active role in getting some of this good information out there to people. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. And, and you know, here's the thing that's funny about that. I, I feel like you, if you had a dollar for every time somebody on TV in sports said, oh, I, I don't care about those analytics or I don't like what the computers say or they don't know anything, you know, they're, we're just talking ball, uh, which, by the way, that's fine if that's somebody's opinion. But I think what we found, and even in some of our analysts, who I won't name names, but who have been a little bit more hesitant to fully yeah. embrace it, yeah. once they yeah. do, they're like, oh, that is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I actually can refer to that. We always laugh because on our show, um, you know, Marcus Spears, is is such a big personality and brings such energy to the table and he was one that from the get-go was like ah man you know I don't know if I'm going to really be all bought into those numbers and now I think has really embraced it and so he always cracks us up he says wow. he'll say he'll say oh y'all better watch out today because I've got paperwork and I'm <laughs> going to be talking about <laughs> some numbers today uh, you know but we we've found too I, I think you know, it's just a, speaks to the overall interest in football and the NFL and college football and how important it is to people. People want to learn. They, they want to know why mm-hmm. pre-snap motion makes a big difference and how mm-hmm. the analytics play into that. You know, show me the numbers to prove that it actually works. Don't just tell me that it works. And mm-hmm. fans in general, I find to be very skeptical unless you can prove something to them via numbers, knowledge, or even showing them and mm-hmm. teaching them. And so that to me on NFL Live and even what we do with our megacasts is a great way to really cater to that fan which um i find more and more there are a lot more of those types of fans and i'm i'm real thankful for that well i think you're 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 right also that it's connected to betting that the betters the betters are more quantitative by nature and also the betters realize other people out there have good information and that's going to affect the markets and so betters are hungry for that stuff and betting has blown up i mean millions of more people are going to bet this year than last just because of legalization and popularization of, of various platforms. And so those two are kind of going hand in hand, which makes your megacast um, all the more interesting since you're in the middle of both of those things. Laura, we know you're busy. We'll let you go. We're super thankful that you took a little time out of your day to be with us. And we hope 
that we get to talk. I especially hope I get to talk some college football with you down the road, but I wish you the best with, with the rest of this week's NFL lives and then week two on SEC game day. Thank you so much. And I would love to come back. I, I got to tell you, I'm going to be in Fayetteville, Arkansas this weekend for Are SEC you? Nation for the Arkansas, Texas game. So we'll see what your Longhorns bring to the table. Our, our new oh, SEC member here pretty soon. Laura, I have been to some Texas, Arkansas games and they are not pretty in the stands. They are not pretty. <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll be fun. Yeah. For you. Enjoy that, Laura. We can't wait. Thanks so much. All right. Laura Rutledge, ESPN. You can follow her on Twitter at Laura Rutledge. She is the host of NFL Live. She also hosts SEC Nation on the SEC Network every Saturday. That has been the first of six guests we're going to have this week. Rolling into our second guest in the second of the first quarter, delighted to have another ESPN celebrity, Seth Walder, longtime friend of the show. Seth, good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm great, Kate. How are you? I'm good. Seth is a sports analytics writer at ESPN. He's been on the show a bunch. He's he kind of is the guy that stands between all the analytics people and the world at ESPN. He's, he makes sense of things. He sells things inside the organization. I, for my money, he has one of the coolest jobs out there. I, I, I mean, it's really neat. And he's making a difference because of the position he's in. Seth, uh, where, where, are you, where, are you, where are you office? Where are you home? What's your home base these days? I don't know what the situation is. You guys are spread um, out all over the place. We are. I'm home in Brooklyn, and uh, and normally I split between Brooklyn and Bristol, but that has not been the case since March of 2020. Okay. Okay. Hey, another thing I don't know is this is an NFL preview, and I know you like NFL, but I don't really know what your true because you're analytics writer generally. We don't know what your biases are. Like, what 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 do you follow most passionately? NFL, not not close. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I do work on other sports, but NFL is my first and foremost. And I, I you know, I, I covered NFL before I got to ESPN. So that's really where my, where my heart is. And then what team did you grow up on and what era? I grew up rooting for the New York giants. Um, and so there were two Super Bowl victories in my fandom. And then when I started covering the jets, I really, um, I really lost that, you know, it's just when you're covering a team, it's just that, that kind of like fandom aspect goes out the door. Now I kind of like miss it. I think I would like being a fan of a team, but I'm, but I'm not. And, you know, you can't just, you can't just manufacture that. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's helpful from an objectivity standpoint, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I wish I would, I wish I could be a little bit less of a fan of my team. I think I'd take a pill to care less if I could. It's a battle between finding that pill and actually kind of embracing it and kind of just resigning myself to it. Unsettled battle. Seth, tell us, speaking of teams, you, you're, you guys do FPI, Football mm-hmm. Power Index, and we love FPI. We've been bragging on it for years. Um, and so it's kind of a go-to source. And um, when you look at the numbers, the, when you look at the season, What's interesting there, I feel like people kind of have the same take on the season. So I'm kind of digging for what's, what are you seeing when you look at that? What do you think that's not obvious or what, what questions do you have based on those numbers? So when we, for our NFL FPI, this is going to be a little bit boring, but because it's largely based on the betting market, it means that it's preseason takes are going to be pretty consensus there's mm-hmm. not it's not going to like jump out on one team we have the chiefs as the super bowl favorite just like everybody else 
at the same time, the flip side of that is probably accuracy like that. I think that deserves to be the case. Yeah. Um, one thing that like jumps out, I think that is a little bit contrarian or maybe people don't necessarily think about is um, we do have the Rams as the best team in the NFC West narrowly, but we have the 49ers as a slight favorite in the NFC West. Okay. And that's because the 49ers have an easier schedule. Okay. You know, this year with the 17 game schedule, you get three games that are different from your division opponent, your division opponents. Okay. It can allow for a little more stratification in the schedules. And so the 49ers are a very easy schedule, whereas most of the other NFC West teams have a middle of the pack schedule or okay. slightly harder than average. Okay. Um, well, that's a good little wrinkle in there because I was about my first, re- my first reaction was, hold on. I thought they were supposed to kind of play the same. So you got a little more variation because of the extra game. Um, you, you said this thing about your projections where, you know, they're kind of boring, but they're kind of accurate, which sounds right. But it leads me to this thing that y'all did recently that I really loved, which was we simulated one NFL season. And the, the, to get, it's a great headline because, you know, most people are saying, we simulated 10,000 or 20,000, which is what you should do in a simulation. But, and that gives you the averages and the expectation. But we underplay variance in the world. And we underplay it as an analytics community because the average person doesn't think about variance. Even sophisticated people don't think very well about variance. And a sim, we really have to go beyond those means, the averages in a sim to explain the wide range of things that do happen. And what better way to do that than go grab one and say, look, we're going to show, you know, whatever it was, 13,363, the 13,363rd simulation. This is what happened. And you'll do a whole article of every week and the details and then who makes the Super Bowl. So tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what you learned from that and why y'all thought it was important to do that. One of the reasons why, well, I think it's it's what you just said is I think the great reason why we do the story, which is that we have it's very hard to anticipate the unexpected, and when you choose just one sim, which I always say life is a single sim, you know, yeah, it's like right. one drop. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just one, and crazy stuff happens, and we know crazy stuff happens in life, and so people say how how is that possible? The Seahawks lose their first nine games. You are insane. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, that is insane. But something insane is going to happen this year. And, of course, we're not predicting that the Seahawks are going to lose their first nine games. But something along those lines absolutely could happen. I'll tell you this. If you read that simulation, that is definitely not the craziest. Like, you know, we look at some of these. Like, we pull out these wild ones where it's a Jaguars-Lions Super Bowl. And it's like, you know, it's like. We can't print that. Anything can happen. There's all credibility. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, trust me, that is a chalkier sim. And you have some weird, you know, you have a couple, you know, have some weird things happen. Like that Seahawks going only nine and the Ravens finishing below 500. And. Uh, the Jaguars making the playoffs and, and all this stuff is like, it's all kind of crazy, but believe me, it can get way it's, wackier. Well, this is the thing. You got to have the right amount of crazy in your sim. You're not running a good sim. If you don't have the right amount of crazy, that's the, how you know whether you have it tuned correctly. So I'll, you, you show us the right amount of crazy in that. I, I love it. I love, I love that y'all do that. Um, something else you've seen recently I'd love to hear more from you about is the, the sack projections. And I think this is kind of your, your baby. And when I was reading that through, I thought the recipe was really interesting and thoughtful. And it reveals, I think it kind of reveals something about the current status of 
football analytics because you bring a lot of different pieces in there. Can you talk us through your model and what you what you think you learned from that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, firstly, I'll just say this was a cool thing for me because I don't do a lot of modeling for our metrics like myself, right? Or I don't do, I don't model for our metrics myself. I get to work with some awesome statisticians who do that. Um, and so this was a cool opportunity for me to just take this project and, and do it. You know, Burke definitely advised me, but good. But it's like, but that's really cool for me. So um, the idea was I wanted to be able to project sacks. And the reason I chose it was because we have like these win rates, right? Pass rush win rate, pass block win rate. And so I felt like, well, that's maybe an area for a little bit of an edge. Um, and so that could, that could be cool. It's, you know, it's just one small factor in there. I yep. used past sacks and sack rates, uh, the win rates, looked at team win totals, how often a coach blitzes. But to me, the number one thing that was interesting about this process was a key factor was the quarterbacks that you're, you're scheduled to face and right. how often those quarterbacks take sacks. Right. And I think it makes sense because we know that quarterbacks have quite a bit of ownership over their own sack rates. Well, you say we know that. You know that because you're smack dab in the middle of the football analytics community. But I'd say three years ago, we might not have known that. I mean, it's a relatively recent piece of information. I think that's right. Yes, that's fair. I should say we maybe the football. We've recently learned. Yeah, we recently learned that that's true. And that was a big factor. You know, one thing that happened with this model, this model, I think maybe it's it's one of its biggest takes is that I love Shaq Barrett. I actually just loves the, the Bucks pass rushers. Okay. Um, okay. And there's a there's and Shaq Barrett is the most fun because he only had eight sacks last year. And so, but it's every other factor besides eight right. sacks right. that does it. You know, he had a big year two years ago. So so that so we know he's got it in him. Uh, but then he's on a he's on a good team, which means you're going to force opponents into desperate situations more often. Yeah, he's so that was the you ran past that win totals input pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But that's the win totals idea is that yeah. if you have a good team, you're ahead more often, meaning the other team is behind more often, which means they're passing more often, which you have more opportunities for second. That's right. Yes. And, and and not just more opportunities, but I think you get in these desperate situations, yeah. third and long, fourth right. and long. You're going to you have to pass and we know you have to pass. Those, those, those are opportunities for sacks. Uh, he's on a team that blitzes a lot. Todd Bowles, you know, we know he like, we know he likes to bring pressure. And then the the slate of quarterbacks that they have to face is incredibly favorable. It's the most favorable in the league. <laughs> um, I'll say I wrote that story. Cam Newton was still the quote unquote starter in my model for the Patriots, okay. but you're still talking about Carson Wentz. You're talking about Sam Darnold twice, Jameis mm -hmm. Winston, uh, mm -hmm. Daniel Jones, all on the Bucks roster. Those are quarterbacks mm -hmm. that take a lot of sacks. That's a mm -hmm. lot of opportunities for sacks. And so uh, I think I think Shaq Barrett could have a really nice rebound year. I really mm -hmm. like Joe Tryon for a defensive rookie of the year, maybe sneakily, mm -hmm. if he can get mm -hmm. on the field enough. That's fun. Um, hey, but I can't let you finish talking about that piece without skipping your headline because people are going to think you're crazy for not naming your number one. So who's your, your TJ Watts, number one, TJ wise, number one. I, I think that's super chalky, but I think it's the right answer. <laughs> right. He's, he's, you know, I mean, look, he's the, he's, he hits every, every box, right? Like the way I said that, that Shaq Bear had every, every box except last year's sack total. Well, mm -hmm. TJ Watt led the league in sacks last year too. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he's a, he's a, just a pass rush win rate wizard too. You know, he's he an incredible burst for TJ Watt. Where so is, where is Baker Mayfield on sack taking this sacking? Mm. 
you know, kind of middle. You're going to, you're going to stun me off the top of my head, which makes me think middle of the pack, but, mm. um, because I don't, I could be wrong though. I, I'll well, stop my hand. Could be wrong. I like to watch Watt play, but I'm sorry that he's in the division he's in now because uh, I like to pull for the Ravens and uh, hate to see him go up against him twice. It's no fun to go up against that guy. That's for dang sure. Hey, before you go, there's another piece I want to hear a little bit more from you about, and that is the best bets file. Y'all do this fun feature where you cast around the whole community there for, and even outside the community for um, what people think might be an interesting number to bet on. You try to come up with something on every team, and I'm curious what you enjoyed about that article. And then speaking of Mayfield, I think you had a reason to take the Browns for the Super Bowl. That's right. I did. I think there's some irony here because I picked, I'm picking the Browns win the Super Bowl and, and they're 16 to one. And that's not what our model, like our model doesn't see that as FBI doesn't see that as a, as a value. Um, but maybe this is ridiculous, but I, I am, I am basically taking a qualitative angle here, which is that I know that the Browns are the most analytics friendly organization in the league. And I, I, I am biased, but I suspect it gives them an edge in a place that I'm not sure I can predict, but I imagine that there is an edge there that we are not seeing. Wow. And Look at the faith. Look at the faith. Seth. There's, there's tremendous, there's tremendous faith here. So I am basically, what I'm doing is I'm placing a <laughs> blind faith in an anecdote in the fact that <laughs> I'm placing faith in the Browns to, to ignore exactly what I'm doing. Like, like yeah, right. don't rely <laughs> on these qualitative hunches. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just going all in there anyway. That's um, I love the irony. It's, it's a, it's a good line. It's a good line. It is interesting that you would place that much faith in them. They've had the most analytics friendly. Well, they've had the most analytics intensive staff for a long time. The mm-hmm. friendliness of the decision makers has waxed and waned under Haslam. But I guess my main, I mean, I know it's an article. I don't know how seriously you believe it, but to the extent that you believe it, I'm pushing you on why now, why this year? I mean, what's the old Martin Luther King Jr. quote about the arc of the moral universe? It's long, but it's been sort of just, it's long, Seth. It's long, buddy. We don't know when analytics are actually going to pay off. Fair. Firstly, I picked the Browns to reach the Super Bowl last year, so this isn't anything new for me. Uh, All right. I think that, you know, there's a certain – the Barry organization has been in there for a little bit now, and I would assume there's some ramp-up time it takes to build an edge. And so – I, but I also think, like, the roster is right. Like it's like, it's, it's like there's, it's coming together of thinking that the, they have this edge, but the roster, they've got a great offensive line. They have upside mm-hmm. from last year and that they could bring Odell Beckham back. Denzel Ward shows tremendous promise. They have a ton of people, a ton of young players in the secondary who all could make the leap, right? Like you only just need one, one of them maybe to make the leap. Miles Garrett plus Jedi and Clowney. I think there's a lot there yeah maybe the way to think about it is it's not that they have an edge this year it's that they have been accumulating edges and they're small every year but they've been they've been as systematic as anybody more systematic than almost everybody and if you are that systematic over time that's the whole theory is that these small edges accumulate and they have been at it systematically for a few years and so maybe you know everyone's talking about the roster well the roster wasn't built by chance i mean the roster was built by some of these edges and so it is likely to pay off at some point super super interesting pick and i love the idea can i plug something quick before we go do do go 
On Monday Night Football Week 1, we have a megacast broadcast called Between the Lines, uh, where it's sort of an analytics-friendly broadcast. We did this during the wild card matchup. Uh, It's all our NFL Live crew, Laura Rutledge, Mina Kimes, Dan Orlovsky, Marcus Spears, uh, and our betting group from Daily Wager. But it's it's an analytics-focused broadcast, so we're going to bring you lots of nuggets And then when it comes like research nuggets about the game, and then if you're looking for a broadcast that's going to break down like Hey, they should have gone for two there. They should have gone for on fourth down. Like you're going to hear it on that ESPN Plus broadcast. So a bunch of us on today's show, are, you know, work on that, and uh, I think it's fun. I work on it, so I'm super biased. But uh, tune in, you know, for Absolutely. the Warren Moneyball audience is really a, a pretty good target audience for this. That's thing. right. That's right. We appreciate the plug. Very happy to provide a platform for it. And in fact, we we're just off the phone with Laura Rutledge, and so we talked a little bit about it in the previous segment, but um, delighted to have the chance to talk with you. Glad to hear you're on that podcast. We'll look forward to it. Not the podcast, the megacast. We'll look forward to it on Monday, Seth. All right, man, Seth Walder, longtime friend of the show, sports analytics writer at ESPN. Seth, great to see you as always. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Cade. All right. Talk to you soon. That's the end of Q1. Stick around. We got more in a- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. You guys can jump in here with us. We wish you would. You can reach out to us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. We love your questions, ideas, challenges, whatever you got, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. You can also send us email. It's our mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upin.edu, moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. Edu. We read everything that comes in. We get as much as possible of it on the air. We'd love to hear from you. Let us hear from you. We are doing an NFL preview show this week. We've got a whole slew of guests lined up. My guys, my co-host abandoned me this week, but I've got some good friends in the world of football analytics, and we've got a bunch of them lined up. In this quarter, Michael Lopez Longtime friend of the show, Michael Lopez. He is currently director of football data and analytics at the National Football League, the National Football League. Michael moved over there from his statistics professor position and has been making change. Dang, Michael. Well, we'll get into it, but first, welcome, Michael. Good to see you. Thanks, Kay. Thanks for having me on. And I miss your I miss your co-hosts, um, but I'll do my best without them. No, I, I I'm glad to have you. Appreciate it. Um Michael, somebody just named you one of the 40 most influential front office people in NFL. Is that right? Do I have that right? Did I see that? Uh, well, it was among the people under 40, and I'm 39 and a half. So <laughs> if they had rounded up, I would have been ineligible, and I would have faded off into oblivion. Right. Never having made the list. Well, you know, you made the list. Before you hit 40, you made the list. And it was like, you know, I don't know. I'm making it up. Andrew Barry and like fancy front office people in various places and Michael Lopez. And you've been with the league. I'm guessing is this your third season. Is this your fourth season? Fourth season. Fourth season. So that's pretty neat. That's pretty, neat. I think it's, I mean, we brag about you all the time, but it's a tribute to the stuff that you've done. One of the things you've done, one of the things everyone's aware of is the big data bowl. We let's, you're about to announce the new topic, which is always a, a, a subject we're interested in, but can you tell us for a second, like, what do you think you've gotten out of the big data? Well, you guys have done three of them, I believe. Like, what do you think the consequences has been, have been of the big data bowl? 
Well, I mean, I think the main reason we're doing it is to bring innovation to the game of football. And it's, it's new data, it's exciting data. And I mean, selfishly, I want to learn more about the game of football. And I think tracking data provides a, a way to do that. Um, I mean, we've had, we've had different, different themes, but I certainly would say that the, one of the highlights was last year during the NFC title game to see expected yards on air being shared by the, by the announcers as this new stat. And that stat came out of the big data bowl. Um, and it came out of, you know, countless meetings that we've had between us, between the NGS team, between AWS folks. Um, it, it came from failings on our end to try and do something similar. And it came from a, a fairly ingenious method from the, the group that developed that winning algorithm. So, you know, I think that's kind of where we are is that the acknowledgement that that football data is, um, there's a lot more we we need we need and, and can learn about the sport and and you know the big data bowl is one way of doing that. Well, you know there are a lot of knock-on consequences of the competition. One, you draw a bunch of people in, um, uh, and a bunch of young folks in particular, and they get stats experience. They get engaged in this whole thing, this whole world, and I think it also helps popularize these concepts because they get so much attention and so many people are talking about it, and so. You, you know, you're, you're a, you're a stats guy and you have some interest in advancing statistical knowledge. And this is just an ingenious way to advance it, not only among users, but among the next ring out people who just happen to be reading and consuming some of this stuff. Um, we're, we're excited about it. We're, we're always excited about it. Um, the, you are on this show standing in a little bit as like the representative of the NFL. What can you tell us is coming up in 2021? Are there rule changes that are, we should have uh, our attention on anything you think is especially interesting. Well, it should be, it should be an interesting year. I mean, last year there was a lot of things that, that stood out in sort of the annals of NFL history. Um, Obviously the, the offensive explosion, the lack of home advantage, I think are two of them teams going forward on fourth down. We're always interested in tracking those. I mean, a couple of things that, that you'll note this year, um, the league is working with Hawkeye for the first time this year. And Tell so, us about Hawkeye. That, I think of that as like a tennis technology. Is that right? right. Well, in football, it's going to be uh, related to the number of camera angles available to the replay assistants at the time of a, a replay. And so traditionally, um, the folks in the Art McNally Game Day Center that are, are making calls on replays, they're watching the same thing that viewers are watching at home. Uh, and now what we'll be able to get is live side-by-side sort of two-by-two uh, camera angles where you're able to see uh, you're able to see multiple angles simultaneously and quick more quickly than you were in years past mm-hmm. and having that at our disposal it should hopefully speed up the game um, and, and from a replay perspective it's about accuracy it's about timing and the hope is that Hawkeye imp- improves accuracy and improves timing and so those are things that we'll be able to track this year. Um, and from a viewer's perspective, we hope it speeds the game up in terms of, you know, nobody watches the game of football to, to wait for a replay decision. Uh, and so, you know, we're hoping that, that that's something that fans will notice this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's neat to think that you're involved with like re- on the refereeing side of things. I, 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 it makes me realize I don't know all the different fronts that you're working on, all the different margins of your professional life within the NFL. Like, <laughs> how would you, how would you describe it? Cause I, you guys support teams to some extent. I mean, you're doing this whole. Innovation yeah. Thing, which is I like mean, I think, I think we're, we're some team support, although that mostly comes on sort of the IT side in terms of the data and the access and, and things like okay. that. Okay. We're, okay. I mean, we're, I would say split between the game itself, competitiveness, equity, um, officiating health and safety. 
um, and then a little bit of innovation mixed in. So, you know, there's sort of a, the, 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 the sort of developing new metrics that might fall more on the next-gen stat side. Okay. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're the group that works with competition on competition committee on the ways to make the game better. And generally, you know, we look at how to make the game better. We want it to be competitive. We want it to be well officiated. Uh, we want it to have a good pace of play and we want the players to be healthy. So that's kind of where, you know, I think the, the sort of areas that we would touch on most. Okay. How, how this is real quick aside now, since you're talking about changes and competition committee, there were some really interesting proposals last year. The so teams can propose changes, right? And one of the teams suggested a new method for overtime. You, you, you remember this better than I do, but it was like, yeah, this, this was, this was several lost nights. Thanks to the Baltimore Ravens. Um, <laughs> well, I figured they probably consulted you, right? So at- yeah, they're, they're, well, a lot of the time was spent collaborating with them on, on uh, just sort of the, you know, I think when, so the way the NFL rules work is that teams submit rules proposals or the competition committee can submit a rule proposal and then the clubs vote on them. And so from a league side, we don't have a role and we don't get a vote. And, you know, nobody cares what I think. Um, but we do, you know, we're tasked with providing data from a perspective of if the league were to adapt this rule change, what would happen? Right. Baltimore's was really interesting. They submitted what was called the spot and choose overtime, which would, re- would be, it would pro- replace the current overtime with a, a sudden death structure that the team that won the toss, they could either, um, you know, choose the, to be the spot team or the choose team. And eventually you would have one team would choose the yard line and the other team would choose whether they want to start on offense or defense. And that's sort of the, the choose aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so it was, let's just say that the, the motivation for this is that everybody realizes that the receiving team in overtime gets too big an advantage. So there's got to be some other way to allocate who gets the ball. Yes. This is the overarching motivation. Some would uh, debate whether it's too big of an advantage, but yes, there, there is, there is a, there is an advantage to getting the ball okay. person over time. Okay. It's just okay. you know, how big is it versus whatever, but yeah, that's, that's a different conversation, but yeah, that was kind of the idea is Baltimore wanted it to be more of a 50, 50 proposition and involve more strategy too, I think was a part of their, their idea. Right, right, right. So your position in those situations is to provide data to the committee. Who's going to make the decision on this thing. Um, Correct. Okay, what about metrics? You 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 you're involved with some some of the past metrics people have come up with. You're you're obviously involved with the next gen stats. What are new metrics you've got your eyes on for the 2021 season? A couple of things that I think are are kind of fun. One is the next gen stats team took the the big datable algorithm, the winning one that I mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago, and they implemented it with quarterback scrambles. And so now we can get expected rush yards when a quarterback scrambles. And that's something that we haven't had before. In the big data bowl, a couple of years ago, we shared handoff data, but you needed a handoff. And now whether it's a designed run or a scramble from the quarterback, we can now start to figure out like, all right, this is how many yards Lamar Jackson gained. What would a typical quarterback have picked up on that play? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's not something that previously had been uh, been calculated in our expected yards algorithm. So that's kind of fun just because it really starts to highlight how athletic some of our quarterbacks are. Um, right. And then rel- relatively speaking, how, you know, some of them uh, running is, is not their strength. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, they're right. Cause that, that must be, that must be, there must be so much more cross player variance than there yep. is running backs. We right. think that there's all this variance in running backs. There's a lot less, but with quarterbacks, man, we have this intuition that it's just massively different, whether you're, 
you know, one of these guys or Lamar Jackson. Yep. So that, that's one thing that I'm excited to see. And then another one we've, um, and this is more internally, but I think it is interesting from like a, a football perspective. What do you do with this data when you have it is we have tracking data on the officials. You know, they wear the same GPS zebra chips that the players do. Um, and so I, I think as a, as a group, as a football data team, we're starting to think about, you know, what, what can we do to help them make better decisions? Um, and just as a, just as a really easy example, you know, a ball's in the air and you're an official, do you want to sprint closer to where the pass is going to arrive? Or would you prefer to be standing still when the pass arrives and maybe you want to slow down? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's something that they grapple with, right? That's part of their, their training. Um, and maybe we can use their tracking data to start to assess, you know, what is the, the best way for them to make decisions? It's, it's tricky. And, you know, as we're starting to figure out, as we look at the data, you know, no two penalties are alike. So you almost have to come up with sort of different frameworks for different penalties and different uh, referee positions. But that's something we're starting to, to, to look at this year as well. Michael, um, one, what, what was the original thought for having the referees wear these chips? I, w- I wouldn't have even known that that would be something you do. Yeah, it was, it was one of those things that they, uh, as they were starting to think about, like, where would they want chips? It was kind of like, all right, well, we can put them here. We can put them here. We can put them there. And, and this was, these were decisions that were made before I came on. But yeah, it, it's nice that they do have these chips that we can now track them with. Um, that, that sounds much creepier than it actually is. But the, the, the other, like there's, you know, there's GPS chips in the, the chains, um, I don't know if anybody besides myself has ever looked at the GPS data in like the chains that they use. Um, and I, I wouldn't encourage anyone to do it because it's, it's really, really messy data. Um, but yeah, there's, there's sort of the zebra chips in different spots. <laughs> okay. Michael, in the time that we have left with you in the last couple of minutes, I want to ask you to kind of put on your outside hat as a statistician, as a thinker, because you're, you're, you know, you're running a lot of interesting programs. You're soliciting a lot of ideas and innovation from people. When, when you're just reflecting on things and what little casual time you have, what is most interesting to you as an analyst right now? In the NFL? What are some questions that you're interested in? What do you think is a margin that's especially interesting or valuable to push right now? Oh boy. Uh, I you think I'm, it. yeah, I'm, I'm really always interested in outside factors that impact game outcomes. Um, and so for example, like a couple of things that, you know, we added an extra game. Um, what does that do to playoff qualification likelihood? You know, this year we got 17 games instead of 16. Um, you know, what does that do to our playoff structure? What does it do to uh, sort of the end of the season, um, you know, tiebreaker scenarios? Uh, and so that's that's one thing that I'm, I'm interested in. And we have some hypotheses that we've shared, um, particularly with respect to sort of, you know, how many games will be important at the end of the year in that week, you know, week 18 now when, you know, we might have more teams eliminated. So that's one thing. Um, and then the other one is just in terms of other things that, you know, sort of are outside of team control. Um, you know, we have this tracking data and I, and I don't, I don't believe we have a great understanding of what, you know, sort of the role of surfaces and weather, for example. So for like, we're, we've done some projects and Tom Bliss, who's one of our data scientists is really just outstanding. And, you know, like, we, we have this, we have, you know, we can play, compare the same player running uh, the same exact route in two different settings. Yeah. Um, you know, what are, you know, one's on the road, one's at home, one's on turf, one's in the rain, et cetera. 
Um, those are all things, you know, we're using this data as the truth, but there's a lot of outside factors that are also influencing a player's speed and acceleration. Right, and right. I don't think we have a great idea. You know, for example, everyone knows that Coors Field leads to more, uh, you know, more home runs in baseball. Are there field factors that we don't know about in football? Um, and I think that's something that we're trying to hint at and, and try to, well, I'm not trying to hint at it because we haven't found much yet, but, you know, we're trying to take a deeper look at just because I think that's, that for me is always really interesting to, to sort of think like we have this ground truth of, of the data and, and, and we're learning more about it, but there are other things that, that really are influencing what a player puts out there in terms of the data that, that I think would be interesting to look at. Very, very cool, Michael. Very cool. Listen, I know you're terrifically busy. Appreciate your breaking free to give us a few minutes. Wish you the best ramping up to week one and the whole season to come. Always happy to chat. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Michael Lopez, Director of Football Data and Analytics at the National Football League. You can follow him on Twitter. Great follow on Twitter, at Stats by Lopez, at Stats by Lopez. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Third quarter of a very special episode of Wharton Moneyball, an NFL preview show where we have some of the best analysts from the world of NFL football lined up. And in this quarter, we have not only that person, but a longtime friend of the show, one of our favorites, Brian Burke is with us. Brian, good afternoon to you. Welcome on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's good to be on with the Larry King of sports analytics. <laughs> and I noticed you finally, uh, you finally shed that dead weight. Those three other guys kept it. Yeah, up. right, right, right. No, talk about a backhanded compliment, you know, in a world where it's like coding an R and doing NGS stats is your real currency. I'm Larry King. I'm a talker. <laughs> that I can make a contribution, Brian. I'll take it. I'll take it. Long as I get to visit with you guys, I will take it. Brian is, as many of you guys know, a senior analytics specialist at ESPN. He, he uh, came out of the military, kind of did his own thing, created a website, got out there on the frontier of football analytics, and people started gobbling him up. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and eventually ESPN. Um, Brian has, Brian, let me speak to you directly as, instead of about you. You've really, I mean, you know, the last couple of years, it's really been about NGS. You got access to these data and you've been crunching them and making big differences. And I mean, goodness gracious, everybody now is talking about like, uh, you know, blocked win rates. And this was something last year, this time last year, you were introducing us to this whole concept and now people are using it. They're talking about it on TV shows. They're baking it into models that tell us who's going to have sacks. I mean, it has to be gratifying. No. Yeah. The win rates uh, really caught on. Uh, We were very fortunate uh, or ESPN was, I guess, smart to get access to the player tracking data from the NFL very early on and as a, as a broadcast partner. And um, we actually had uh, more complete access to the data than the teams themselves for a couple of years. So the, mm-hmm. the first couple of years, the teams themselves could only see their 11 players on the field and they couldn't even see their, their actual opponents in, in those games. So we had access to all the tracking for all the teams, for all the games. And so we really had a, a head start on the rest of the world as far as making sense of the player tracking stuff. 
Well, well, listen, now let's do this kind of quickly because I want to move to more current things, but I, I think there are some general lessons to draw about how you went about building that model. My memory of talking about it, reading about it and talking about it with you last year is that you were like shoulder to shoulder with former players making sense of these wins or losses and, and guys blocking and trying to be and trying not to be blocked. Because because people may not realize it now, but this is all algorithmic. I mean, no one is coding these things at this point. You're just running the tape and you're telling, you're, you know, you're getting data back to say, you know, this person won this block, this person won that block. You had to build the algorithm. And it seems to me that people may not realize it's not always just a quant sitting in his basement, like getting real smart about numbers, but actually sometimes those quants spend, sometimes the best models come from quants spending time with non-quants to make sure their model's better. Oh, yeah, yeah. And not so much the win rates as much as the the coverage models. So a lot of the classification stuff we do uh, as far as what the coverage is or what the play call was, what the routes were. I spent a lot of time, especially um, particularly with Dominique Foxworth, who, who lives in the area and is a super smart guy in his own right. And um, I learned a ton from him. And uh, I, I owe a lot to him, actually, as far as making sense of uh, a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us what you're working on now. What, what are we going to be talking about next year? That what, What's going to be all the, on these talk shows and, and, and people are going to be baking into their models next year because you created it out of thin air in August 2021? Uh, so the most recent stuff regarding the player tracking uh, stuff we did, it was at the end of last year, actually, we, we started um, putting it out, but we're doing more run play stuff. So run play analysis. So we're recognizing the type of play. Was it a was it a, a power, a counter, inside zone, outside zone, that sort of stuff? So we're we're classifying those things, and then at the same time we're we're identifying double teams, and on the defensive side we're identifying fronts, uh, even front, odd fronts, mm-hmm. unders, overs, all these different things, tight fronts now, um, bare fronts. Let me, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there and ask what I think I know where this goes, but let's just be plain about it. What's the benefit of automating all of that? So this sounds pretty technical and boring. And why do I care whether they're an over or under and whether you can do that algorithmically? Well, a lot of what I'm doing is classification stuff. So it's, it's not really optimizing or, or, or trying to assess certain players or, or grade anything. I just want to know what the play was, what the play calls were, because then what we can do is kind of match up Hey, this was this kind of offensive play versus this kind of defensive front. Um, you know, what, what are the what are what are the ways you can um, capitalize on certain things? How can you exploit certain vulnerabilities in an opponent? Uh, from from the ESPN perspective, we want to tell stories. We want to tell interesting things about different teams. So certain teams have different. Um, have different schemes and different approaches. And so we want to identify those. Uh, we want to be able to communicate that to, to fans. So that's, that's really the purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then those things also eventually get baked into more complicated models. They're the inputs it, essentially. And yeah. then right, right, right. Is it, analytics. Mm-hmm. Eventually. Right. So um, a big, one of our next projects, we have a roadmap. One of our next projects is going to be, um, a player grading on receivers and defensive backs. And so one of the things that we have that, you know, NGS right now doesn't have themselves and other places don't have, we have route and route combo 
identification and we have the coverage type. And so we can identify a defensive, not, not only man or zone, but we can say this defensive back was the hook, uh, the weak hook responsibility in this cover right. three. And right. so we add that, we, we add that to the mix uh, as far as um, the, you know, any kind of model that's, that's grading the, those players. And um, it's going to be very, very helpful. Brian, this is a longer conversation, but let me, and I'm going to, boy, I'm going to broach it with at least one other guest today, but you, you've talked about this explicitly. I'm, cur- I'm curious your current thinking. We, we do, in the analytics community, a lot of what we do is we ask how a guy performs given a situation. It's a lot of it. We're kind of contextualizing performance. I mean, just go to like ballpark effects in baseball is the simplest version. And we've done a lot of that in football, but then we kind of, at some level appreciate sometimes guys influence what situation they're in or what situation appears. And if we, if we always just condition out situation, then we're robbing somebody of an impact they had, if they actually influence that situation. You talked about this when you were talking about your quarterback, you know, quarterback decision-making a couple of years ago, you're pushing. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So given a situation, we know um, how he did, but when are we going to get to, I think about it as opportunity conversion versus opportunity creation. And when is analytics, what's an example, maybe we're going to get there eventually, but what's an example of where analytics is helping us understand how a player or coach alters the situation? And are we a little blind to it if we're just forever contextualizing and conditioning out the situation? Okay. So, so in NGS, so next gen stats, which is the league itself, they have a statistic called completion probability. And so you can look at um, completion probability over expected as a way to grade a receiver, let's say. So he's, he's catching more passes than you would expect given, given the relative speeds and distances and, and right. depths and things like that. But the problem is the receiver himself is partially controlling those speeds and distances, right? So, so it's a self-defeating metric if, if you want to apply it to receivers that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can do is segment certain things. So my approach so far has been there's a, a skill about getting open, and then there's another skill about making catches, mm-hmm. and then there's another skill about getting yards after the catch. And so when you segment those things, you, you, you account for them separately, and it, it solves that problem. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you account for getting open? Basically, creating high probability catch situations. Well, you so one say one of the you know first thing you do is you have a model that say that says um, uh, probability of you know being open. You know you have some metric of openness. You to, so you're modeling openness. You put that on the left hand yeah. side and start getting that. Okay, so that's you're modeling creating those situations explicitly at that point. And then the next step is given how open you were, did you make the catch? Were you able to make this contested catch along with everything else you want to contextualize? And okay. so when you segment those things and you understand the full process, um, then you I think you're you're successfully solving that problem. What is different about FBI this year and are you involved with both the college side and the NFL side, or are you just on the NFL side? Just the NFL side. I'm not really even, you know, um, you know, neck deep in the in the FBI itself. So Paul Sabin, um, Lauren Poe, Hank Arjulo, yep. um, um, Mitchell Wesson. Um, they've they've really contributed more than me. I was I was off rebuilding sort of the core metrics. 
So our expected points model and our wind probability models, uh, we're, we're growing old. Um, <laughs> the, the wind probability model. So um, quick story is that was the, that was wind probability is a big reason ESPN recruited me to join. And it was yeah. my first big project. Um, Brian, let me just say, I saw that the score article about the history of wind probability added, which was just so much fun. A little run through the history of oh, it. Yeah. Um, lovely credit to you and then other others who contributed along the way. Yeah, that was actually expected points, but but oh. wind probability is slightly different story. Um, but yeah, expected points is amazing. Uh, the, the story behind expected points is really amazing. When mm-hmm. Virgil Carter, just Google for those listening, and you're not if you're not in your car listening on the radio, uh, when you get home, Google Virgil Carter expected points. It's an amazing story. Um, but yeah, so our wind probability model was focused really on decision analysis and you really have to make some trade-offs some choices when you're modeling. And I decided that I think it would be best if the model performed very, very well in situations that were very common, not, you know, very, very uncommon situations like a 28 to three comeback. (laughs) And, um, but then what I found was sports center would call up and say, Hey, how improbable was that comeback? Right. I'm trying to split hairs between like one in a million and one in a thousand trillion. I'm like, we don't have that kind of you know resolution in the model but that's what that's what they were interested in and it's also the kind of thing that attracts a lot of criticism so you know my my model's out there for the world to see on every game page all over espn for just about every sport in america and so people the most frequent criticism is what you know 99.5 percent and they came back to win they don't understand that there are thousands and thousands of these games you know going on all the time so um but the criticism was valid. The model was overconfident in these, these tales. The tales. Yeah. So, um, so we improved that the expected points was a big problem because in the NFL, especially the, it's easier and easier to move the ball. So, uh, and then 2020 was an extreme example. It was really an outlier how easy it was uh, to move the ball. And that changes the expected points model. And when we, originally developed this this version about five or six years ago it was supposed to be able to kind of keep up year after year after year but it just didn't work the way we intended it to so we had to rebuild expected points and so that underpins everything that underpins fpi and qbr and just about everything else we do Mm -hmm. it's it's a little humbling that the models have to be updated as much as they do because that's in some ways that's the biggest question that a modeler faces is whether the world has changed and has it changed so much that I have to change my model. And sometimes your model is not performing well and you have to ask yourself, is it just chance or has the world changed? And this is, this is an illustration that sometimes the world does change. You have to improve your model. Yeah. NFL is a moving target. It's not a static thing. Uh, All the rules changes and um, I don't know how much had to do with COVID and the lack of crowd noise and things, but 2020 was very unusual. So ideally expected points added, if you understand what it, how it works, like you want it to be zero, you want the mean to be zero, but it just never worked out that way. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've, we haven't totally solved that, but we're much closer. Brian, in the last minute we have here with you, tell us one thing you're interested to see how it works out this year. One question you're most interested in about the 2021 NFL season. Oh gosh. Um, I want to see, I want to see, I want to, 
line play is really important to me. It's really interesting to me, I should say. So I, I want to see how important how important line line play is. Um, so with the win rates we talked about, um, so nothing in particular about any any particular team. I know like teams like the Browns have a very strong offensive line. You know, I just want to see how far the the line can carry a team. So you have in your head right now a, a distribution of line quality across the 32 teams, and you're curious how tightly that relates to how the teams do. Yeah, it has a lot to do with like roster construction and questions like that. So yeah. you, I'm a fan. I have a I have a favorite team I root for as a as a you know, and I'm as crazy as any fan. But then I'll, 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 the confess, confess, confess. Baltimore, Baltimore. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, you're from uh, Baltimore, right? Yeah, I grew up in Baltimore, and uh, they're they're the first team to ca- call me up and ask me to consult too. So that was kind of that was nice. that was kind of a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but then the analyst in me, I really who wins and loses, and you know what players are good and bad, like doesn't really interest me as much as these sort of meta meta questions. Um, so that's how I that's how I watch. All that. right. Well, that's a fun one, and there's lots of details there in that line construction. So maybe on the other side of the season, you can tell us a little bit about what you found out, but very much appreciate your taking the time. We know you have a lot of balls in the air. So thanks for stepping aside and visiting with us for a little while. Always happy to come on. Thanks, man. Brian Burke, longtime friend of the show, senior analytics specialist at ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter. B Burke ESPN, B Burke ESPN. Fantastic follow on Twitter. Joining us now, we have Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh, as many of you know, is a writer and analyst for 538. He's also the founder of airyards.com. Fantastic follow on football. His Twitter handle at Frisco Josh, at Frisco Josh, must follow in the world of NFL. Longtime friend of the show. We always are happy for a chance to talk with you. Welcome back, Josh. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Kate. It's always good to be on my favorite podcast. Well, look at him. Look at that politician. Appreciate that. Um, listen, man, I want to talk NFL with you. I want to talk expectations. Um, what teams you're shorting, what teams you're putting some chips on. But first, I want to hear a little bit about this piece you did at 538 just a couple of days ago. So that was really neat on interior run defense. You, you set out to kind of judge who's got good interior run defenders, and then you ended up with some kind of surprising takeaways. Can you talk about, can you talk about the piece? Yeah, so I, what I really wanted to do was figure out because I have such an appreciation for these big men in the middle who are two gapping all the time. So you might be lined up directly over the center and you have to be responsible for both the gaps to your left and your right. And I would, you know, you watch them on game day, you're watching some line play and you just see these immense men trying to hold the line and keep their leverage and then also be responsible for any play that comes into two different sides, either side. Of right. And so I, I was like, well, there, that has to be harder than being lined up right in the middle. Like they call it three technique in between the guard and the tackle and just either being responsible for that one gap. And, and there's more to it than that, but, or, or rushing the passer. And so I wanted to adjust for that. That was the motivation here. I wanted okay. to be like, you know, the defense doesn't matter guy comes out and like give some love to these, these big men in the middle. And yeah. Um, and it did turn out, well, it, it turned out the opposite of what I thought. I thought that they would have fewer rushing wins, which is a, a metric defined by Brian Burke, who you also had on this podcast today. Um, he did a lot of work on this metric and it's based on uh, next gen stats and movement and speed and angular momentum and all sorts of stuff. And, and uh, he came up with a, actually a really solid metric. I think it's one that 
I hope ESPN uses more I, after, you know, messing around with it for a while. Uh, I have a, a real appreciation for it. I think it, it's stable. It correlates pretty well um, uh, in the aggregate uh, to the things you would want it to like yards per rush. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a diversion, but I used that metric and I expected to see what I thought I would see is that these big men would have fewer wins over expected when you adjust for all the rest of the stuff. And it turned out that they actually have more and, my best guess at the rationale there is they have two gaps, you know, so that, so the two gap issue is actually a benefit for them in this metric because they have another opportunity to make a tackle. And I guess if you're being asked to play that position, you're already pretty darn good at it. So um, anyway, long story short, after aggregating all those at the player level and then finally aggregating at the team level, um, I, uh, I ranked the teams from last year and, and, and a few previous years for which we have data and uh, the jets were amazing. And uh, they, they, they lapped the field, in fact. Um, uh, but uh, obviously, we're not a very good team. Um, and one of the reasons why, in general, we might say that that is the case is that if you have a really stout interior run defense, you're kind of incentivizing the other team not to run against you, but instead to do the more efficient play type and pass against you. And perhaps in certain circumstances for certain teams, that's not a great trade-off. Well, I mean, you're going humble there at the end because I think you would argue that for most situations and most teams, that's not a good trade-off, right? I mean, that's I think, the, I, I, think I qualified it. I said, I said, I said, it may not be a good trade-off <laughs> unless I phrase it unless you have an outstanding defense everywhere else, right? Yeah. If you're completely yeah, okay. solid in the secondary and you can cover over the middle, then maybe maybe it's worth investing some extra capital up up in that interior run defense. Well, that's, I love that last line because I think that's the big takeaway. I mean, to the extent that we buy your analysis and we buy the logic, the implication that you, where you take it, and I, and I do on both cases, it suggests something about roster construction, which is something that's not – I mean, people argue about it all the time. People are beginning to realize that's really the, what we're trying to get to is like how do you optimally allocate money across positions and you know, talent levels you're trying to acquire within each position, the things that GMs do – no one has that model written down. It's a super complicated thing, but we're getting little insights and pieces here and there. And I, I think it's a pretty direct step for your piece says, eh, you know, one of the downsides of really loading up in the middle of your line is that you're going to incent passing and you kind of don't want to incent passing in general. Is that sure. fair? Yeah, I think that's completely fair. I mean, that was my takeaway. I think there's probably more to it than that. Um, for instance, uh, another guy who's on your show, Eric Eager, he, he did a little work on this and he said, well, if you follow that up with a defensive scheme that doesn't allocate players into the box and just relies on these big yeah. men up front who are excellent at their jobs to take care okay. of the line, okay. then perhaps you gain something in the defensive secondary that yeah, right. makes up for that investment. So now we can go back to criticizing the Jets for wrongly deploying their great personnel. Is that there right? You there you go. <laughs> as long as we can bring it back to Jet criticism, we're on safe ground. Um, Josh, uh, let's talk about expectations for the season. Um, you guys just published 538, just published their, their model and it's so new that I haven't been able to go through it. Maybe you can give us some highlights, but in general, I'm curious what teams you think are maybe overhyped going into the season. What teams do you think maybe are underappreciated? Yeah. So we're, we're fairly close to the market. Um, and that's because it's a large part of our model. Um, so we, we actually regress things to, to the markets and then 
we have a small piece that's QB ELO. And then the rest of it is past seasons ELO, which obviously is kind of like a chain. You can think of it as like this expectation that updates continually over time and it stretches all the way back for years and years and years. But uh, this, our model says the Buccaneers are the best team. Uh, again, I, I don't, I guess, I guess my take is that the Buccaneers are an example of a team that people like me who like to make projections. I mean, it's a dream team. They're basically returning everyone yeah. that we had last year as starters. And that makes them very projectable. Um, however, coming into last year, you know, the markets, the best guess for what the Buccaneers were as a team with this exact talent level was 10. Uh, so there's one way of, of, of kind of quantifying, quantifying this, pardon me, is to take the Pythagorean expectation, the win rate from the futures markets. And it was like 58% last year, and it's now 68% this year. Right. And, um, and so I, I don't know that there's a, I've heard a very good explanation for why the markets were so off last year, that they, they should be adjusted 10% this year, other than, look, they won the Super Bowl. I mean, we have new information on Tom Brady in this scheme. You could argue he got better as the as the season went on. I mean, those are those are all reasonable, but they also were hugely lucky when it came to injuries. Like they were number one in adjusted games lost by the uh, Football Outsiders metric that tracks the number of yeah. injuries. And I'm sure the markets are baking that in somehow, but it just still seems to me like there's not enough of this idea of just because they're the same, they're going to be just as good. It's yeah. a kind of a fallacy. I, I don't know yeah. that, that that's properly baked in. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I, I love that. And I, maybe because I don't, I kind of somehow pull against the bucks. I don't, it's not fun if they're going to win again. I have no reason to pull for those guys, even out of love for Bradlow and his team. I can't quite do it, but I, I, I love you. You're thinking about it more deeply than I was. And you're coming up with, I think good rationales for shorting them. And there's just, you know, I would, I would be as shallow as saying short the narrative. There's just such a pretty narrative here. And the, all the guys back and, and, you know, all that is just, it's a really pretty story, but mostly we, mostly teams don't repeat and mostly there, we see regression to the mean. And then, you know, what about, and I think this is a question you've raised. When do you, when does Brady fall off a little bit? And I know we could, you know, bankrupt ourselves betting on that over the last few years. Who knows it's going to be that this this year, but at some point it's going to be. I mean, do we really expect no regression from a guy who is as old as he is? Yeah, it seems strange, especially when uh, when people like me who who kind of hold up quarterbacks as the main reason why a team is successful were saying, no, it was the defense last year. Brady was trash. Did you watch the <laughs> Super Bowl? Like those same people are now saying, yeah, bucks all the way. Super Bowl contenders again. Right. So right. I don't know. Okay, good. Okay, I'm short the bucks. Thank you. How about the Browns, there's another, there's a whole lot of story. In fact, some folks on the show talking about the Browns. And now we have a story that even the anti-story people like because the story is about analytics and, and what a smart team it is. And we're, this is a team that's been building up edges over, over a number of years now. And maybe they're finally going to get over the Mayfield, you know, started with the bang, little down, still, still got a ton of potential. Um, what do you believe about the Browns? Well, they couldn't have a better situation at this point. Their main rival in the division is having a cursed preseason. The Ravens just can't get healthy. They keep losing people left and right. I think they've had two Achilles injuries to their running backs. And, and maybe you argue, well, that's to be expected. 
analytics people, you know, of course, running backs are going to get injured, but still that, that room is depleted and, and that yeah, is a yeah. team that likes to run. Yeah. So, so they've got that going for them. They've got, um, you know, the, the Steelers are a team that I don't, I don't think you can argue got better. Um, I mean, they spent their first round pick on a running back who's kind of, I don't know, a banger. He's not really a, a, a dynamic player. He just kind of, I think he's going to get you some yards, you know, between the tackles. And then they re-signed uh, Big Ben. And and uh, despite what our QB Elo says, by the way, our QB Elo has him at fifth, the fifth overall quarterback. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but despite that. Uh, <laughs> that was a naked eye test, right? Yeah. That, that, that I think we need to regress to MVP uh, odds or something let's, like that. Let's do, the, let's do the Steelers for a second because I just kind of, I'm not following things as closely. And I come to the NFL without having paid as much attention and, my vision of the Steelers these days is a kind of a franchise in decline. Like they're not staying up with cutting edge technology, analytics, thinking, whatever. And so it's, it's kind of a base rate argument that they, there's a long, there's kind of a, you know, long-term decline here. And yet, and, and we haven't seen great performance lately. And yet people are saying this is one of the stronger teams in the AFC. I don't, I don't really understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And, uh, you know, to our credit, our QB Elo has them eight and nine, um, which I don't, I don't think the markets are that pessimistic on them, but, but I think, you know, in, in general, yeah, you're right. And, and the Steelers, you know, re-signing Roethlisberger for another year is probably, is probably not a great move. I think the Ravens and the, and the Browns cheered when that occurred. And, um, yeah, no, I, I think they're a team on the decline, despite the great coaching of Mike Tomlin, who's a fantastic leader of men by all accounts and, can motivate that team in ways that uh, you know most coaches would love to. Um, mm-hmm. I just think the talent on the roster is not quite mm-hmm. ready to, be, mm-hmm. to compete mm-hmm. with the Browns and the Ravens. But back to the Browns, I think they still get a lot of benefit of the doubt in certain things. Like, I, and I realize that last year's um, point differential is not this year's expectation. Lots of things changed. They've upgraded their, their roster. Their defense certainly looks very good. You ask someone at PFF, they'll tell you they have the best talent on paper in the league. Wow. I don't know if I buy that, but fine. Um, but there's other folks who will argue that by the end of the season, they were as good, that it was a coin flip between them and the Ravens. And I, that I don't buy. And I, and I would, I, I, I think while things are shaping up for them to be um, one of the better teams in the league, just because of what's happening to the Ravens and in their division, um, I'm not sure I'm as high on them as the market or even our ELO. I think we have them as a 10 and seven team uh, and basically even with the Ravens. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, Josh, how do you think about when you override your models? You're, you're saying here's the model and I'm kind of, I'm just kind of shorting it. Like how do you, what, what is it that under what circumstances do you feel it's appropriate or even wise to do that? When the market is telling you that you're way off, um, I think is the first indication and if there, if you see that happen in a number of occasions, obviously, then maybe there's something you can generalize from and and go back to the model and try and fix. When we discuss the issue internally with Roethlisberger being number five, it turns out that we're carrying over 2018 to a large degree because he was injured for all of 2019. So perhaps there's something we can do there. And and as I mentioned, maybe regressed MVP odds. So I I, I don't know. Uh, the precise, you know, it's not, that's not my domain. I don't actually, I'm not actually in charge of that model, but I think those are the type of analysis you need to do. Um, like for instance, our, our sister station, our sister people over at ESPN, they have the, um, the Seahawks as 
when they're simulation, they're going to be, they, they simulated the season, what, 10,000, 30,000 times, and, and they have them as the worst team in the league. I think if you look, take one look at the markets and see how far off that is from expectation, <laughs> you should probably say, well, hmm, we should look at this. And, mm. uh, and so I don't know. I don't know. That, I, th- I think that's the, but that's the framework I would use that I'm with you, Cade. Don't put your finger on the scale unless you have to. But if, if smart people who are their best predictor in, in an efficient market like the NFL um, if smart people are saying that you're wrong, you, you need to be humble enough to, to look at your model. Mm-hmm. Listen, man, uh, just down to about a minute or so with you. I'm curious. We've talked about a couple of teams you think are overrated. Who would you say is perhaps underrated, underappreciated going into the year? Yeah, I don't, I think, uh, I don't know if they're underrated anymore, but I, I liked the chargers a little more than, mm-hmm. um, perhaps some at the beginning of the season and more than I thought I would last year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Herbert. Herbert, I don't know, is going to regress as much as maybe someone like I've, I've analyzed Josh Allen, and he seems to be a guy who's going to regress. Um, but it doesn't seem to me, looking at Herbert, that, that, that he has as many red flags. And, uh, and gosh, to be that good in your first year yeah. um, with that team, I, I, think, I think they could go they could go deep in the playoffs if things break right. It'd be fun to see the Chargers do well. They've been kind of you know, underperforming, not quite getting there for so long. Um, it's great that they have a quarterback they're that excited about. And, you know, the other thing about these young quarterbacks is that, yeah, there may be some regression in the mean, but you also see growth. You know, you've got to account for the just mean increase that comes from experience, or at least generally comes from experience. That'll be a fun story to follow. Josh, thanks, man. Always appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Great fun talking to you. We'll look forward to grabbing you again later in the season. Great. Thanks, Kate. You bet. Josh Hermsmeyer, analyst and writer with 538, founder of airyards.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Frisco Josh, at Frisco Josh. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth and final quarter. Final quarter of our NFL preview show for 2021. Been fortunate today to have a chance to talk to a lot of folks from around the world of football analytics and some longtime friends of the show. And we're ending our anchor leg, Eric Eager <laughs> leg, on this six-person guest platform. Delighted to have you, Eric. Good afternoon to you. Welcome back. You know, when I was in high school track, I was on a, a very fast relay team. But I will say all the records we set, I was always second or third. I was never first or fourth, um, which, which if you know anything about track, uh, tells you that I was not the fastest person. But uh, it's nice to be in the anchor leg for once. That's right, man. That's right. We got you in the anchor position. We knew you, you, you had this kind of baggage of never being the anchor person. So here you go. Bringing us home. Here's your baton, Eric. Let's take, us, take it around the track. For those of you who don't know, Eric is the VP of Research and Development at PFF. PFF, of course, is an organization absolutely at the frontier of football analytics, has been for a little while, and um, we're better off for the work they do. Um, Eric is a great follow on Twitter, by the way, at PFF underscore Eric, at PFF underscore Eric. But frankly, all the guys at PFF are. You know, I have a whole slew of those guys. Great, great community. Uh, Eric, you did an article earlier this summer that I'd love to hear a little bit from you about up top, and that's about evaluating coaches. And it caught my eye because – I don't think we do enough on evaluating coaches. We do all this stuff on players. And of course that's worthy. And we've got a lot more to learn. And we're, we're going to be working on it forever. 
But why not bring some of that firepower to coaches? God knows they matter. At least we think they do. Let's at least establish that. How much do they matter? But you went out and did these things. You, you looked at coaches, but then the one that really caught my eye was play callers. And you're able to go in and say, you know, who's calling plays at each team. And you're able to assess who's adding the most value. So I just think it's a neat little analytics exercise. And it also tells us something about teams, which might be useful for thinking about the 2021 season. So can you talk a little bit about that model? Where where did it come from? What are you doing methodologically? And then what were the insights you gained from those pieces? You did one on the offensive side and the defensive side. Yeah, and there's actually two different models that we'll use in prediction. One of them is sort of like a how how much did value did this coach add above expected? So we have player grades and we have another team's player grades. So we know on a play kind of like what you would expect a team to gain from an expected points added perspective. And then we know what they do gain. And then, you know, we, we know how frequent and infrequent a play is, right? So we can kind of weigh uh, the signal type plays and the noise type plays. And so over time you can sort of like look and say, okay, this guy did more with less than his, you know, contemporaries over the course of a certain season or time period or whatever. That's one of them. And that was the one that I cited in that article. There's another one that I call scheme uniqueness. Yeah. So that essentially says, and I think there's more of an edge, like let's say you're trying to bet or play fantasy football. I think there's more of an edge in modeling that than there is in how good the play caller is because I think team level ratings have baked in there the the goodness of the coach, right? Because like they're for whatever reason, New England continued to win, right? Even though the sum of the parts is always less than their record. Eric, but, this is something that this is a conversation that Rufus and I have had for years. For years, I was like, let's do coaches, Rufus. And he's like, No, it's already in there, man. It's already in there. It's already in there. Now it's not perfectly in there. And yeah. we've learned to add a little bit, but you're making a very good point that it's that part of it is to some extent baked in. Yeah, their football is a very multiplicative game. And so I think at the extremes, it's not in there. You know what I mean? Like I think, but the difference between team 10 and team 20 is probably well captured in the power rating you have. Okay. Um, Andy Reid's ability to continuously go over the win total and Adam Gase's inability to field competent teams I think is where you can get an edge in just looking at how good coaches are, right? Like, um, but there's this other thing, which is scheme uniqueness, which is, you know, how much different are you than the pack? And, and to me, that's, I think, where you can really do a good job of saying, okay, you know, the Ravens in 2019, this is a team to bet on. Um, the Rams in 27 to 2018, this is a team to bet on. Because I think like, and, and how you do this is actually fairly straightforward. You just look at, you know, rates of uh, all the, K- I call them KPIs in football. How often do you run play action? How often do you run RPOs? They're not results-based things. They're literally what you do to get good outcomes. Yeah. RPOs, play action, on defense, how often do you show the same coverage that you play pre-snap? Right. How often do you run stunts? Um, how often do you blitz? Um the, the one that's really interesting, I, f- I feel like, is how often do you run man coverage? Because I feel like man coverage is a very, like, U-shaped thing where the worse you are, like, the more man, the more how good you are at man coverage is going to affect you, as well as how, how, the, how extremely good you are as well. Because if you're really good at man coverage on defense, 
you can extend the difference between you and the other team immensely. If you're really bad at it, the exact opposite can happen to you. Right. If you're somewhere in the middle, you should just run zone a lot and muddy the waters right. and and win a random game. Um, but yeah, yeah. So you can take like the propensity to which a lot of these teams run, do these KPIs, run them through some dimensionality reduction, plot them on a n-dimensional surface and say, okay, this point is a, a long way away from all the other points. That's a unique offense. That point's far away away. And you could also look at like how close different teams are. So the San Francisco 49ers to the Green Bay Packers, oh, they have some lineage there with LeFleur coming from a Shanahan system. That makes kind of sense, right? And doing that, I feel like, has an immense value to you know teams game planning because there's so much drift in the NFL where – if you rely on your intuition, the realities of football could have changed without you even noticing. But it also obviously has implications if you want to play fantasy football or bet on games and things like that. Yeah, just to make sure I'm following you, uniqueness alone is a positive. I, th- yes. If you that's look historically. That's what you found empirically. Yeah. If you look historically, because the, the tendency, um, and I think you'll like this, right? Because, yeah, you know, uh, there's some of your friends in, in behavioral economics that are like, you know, the the tendency of the failures in a group are to fail with the pack, yeah, right? Absolutely. So if you are a uniquely bad scheme, over time you will tend to the median just because that's your, your tendency is to fail is to fail with the group. If you are a a unique individual and you are sustainably so that that it's asymmetric that way. Right. Like, so there could be a situation like the New York giants were like this last year where through two weeks, they had a unique scheme, but it was for all the bad things. They weren't running motion. They weren't running play action. They were just, but like over time, eventually you sort of start to do things at a league average rate because it's just, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, gravity of the situation. But the, the folks that do unique things, the league tends to them. But they tend to – their their goal, like Andy Reid's goal, is to always move further away from the pack. So over time, scheme uniqueness, generally speaking, will be worth something in the point – in the betting market after controlling for everything else, even controlling for how good the coach is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and it, and it raises another point that would be interesting to get traction on, though it requires a lot more data, and that's the second-order point of – the ability to stay unique. It's one yeah. thing to come out with a scheme that's different. And I mean, the NFL is great at catching up to different schemes. So you've got to have that. You've got to have another move or you've got to have the ability to stay different, which that's really what separates people. Right. Um, I don't know how Andy Reid has done it for as long as he's done it. Yeah. And, and that's why, I mean, when you look at, they're just, I mean, even Chip Kelly, who I'm really fond of actually. Um, he's coming back. Know, that's what made it. He's coming back now. Right, 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 right. But this is, I mean, we, they, he was like exhibit A for not staying unique, but maybe he's going to get it done. He had a, he has had a nice couple of games and people are saying maybe this is the year. We can't drift into college football. That's not what we're supposed to do yeah, today. Yeah. But Chip Kelly's kind of an interesting study on exactly that point. Um, well, I, I, I like the other model as well, because I, I think it's just interesting to see what, what coaches are adding value. And especially, you know, coaching searches would be, much improved by bringing some analytics to bear. It's not the way they're typically done, but your, I mean, your simple analysis of, of defensive play callers and offensive play callers should be right there in the, you know, the, in the, in the 
portfolio they build on these candidates. Like where, how the guy, and then these guys at the top really do separate themselves. I've Lincoln Riley in the, on the college level is somebody who really separates himself as value added. The other thing that's interesting to me about it is that you're able to then consider two different dimensions of a coach when the coach has some control over personnel. So you, you have John Gruden on your play caller list, which is funny. One of the nice things about your analysis is like it conditions for the quality of the players, right? Never mind who's responsible for putting those players on the field. Let's at least give him credit for doing well with the people that he he was able to put together. Yeah. It's sort of that hot dog soup meme, right? Where the guy's like, I don't know who caused this, but I'm going to come in and solve it type of thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you're, you're part of the issue. It, it, you bring up a, uh, an interesting point about, evolution right like i and i put this uh, in our notes i think i I feel like it's a great question uh you know when some sports have become less um fun because of analytics or because information right like there's one equilibrium point right i think that football may there probably is just one equilibrium point but we're so far away from it right that we're sort of tending to these like local points and where there's multiple different ways to win, there's also just a lot of noise. So, like, there's a lot of, like, false efficiencies yes. that pop yes. up. Yes. But I, I think that, interestingly, the NFL is such that the evolution of the game and, like, the constant whack-a-mole that we're all doing to try to understand it can make can, – can help analytics make the game more fun, right, mm-hmm. which I think is important. Uh, it's an important part of the endeavor. I, I – you know, the game is the game is optimized to be fun. And I think that that's a, a pretty cool thing. It is. And we're lucky that the, our preferred sport is that way, as opposed to our friends on the baseball side of the world. Um, and it definitely seems that way. And and it sure has, I think, made it enjoyable, even just the last few years. And I enjoyed football to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, man, after the coach, pretty clearly the quarterback is the most important position. And People talk about, you know, do you got your guy? Do you got your franchise guy? And there's always this perennial debate about can he, can that guy take a team to the Super Bowl? And teams are, until you got that guy, you're kind of restless and you're not confident. Where are you in that debate? How many guys do you think in the NFL could take their team to the Super Bowl these days? It's a different answer depending upon how much, you know, what, what class they're in, right? Like, the in 2011 when the NFL made the new CBA and they they put a cap on what quarterbacks can make as a rookie deal or all players can make on their rookie deal they they inevitably created a system where the the most important problem in football analytics currently in my opinion is being able in 4 years to decide if a quarterback is good, good independent of everything yeah 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 right and, and cuz I think we all see it in Mahomes, but even then, like, man, that's Andy Reid, right? Like a lot of Andy Reid there, but like we've seen it over and over again. If you pay Carson Wentz under $10 million and build a team that's extremely anti-fragile, like the 2017 Eagles were, right? The ton of injuries on that team still win the Super Bowl. If you're the Rams and you, you can build a, a really nice system around Jared Goff, you can make a Super Bowl. Obviously, Kansas City won one with Mahomes on a rookie deal. Seattle won one with Russell Wilson on a rookie deal. Um, you see it over and over again. You know, right now, Lamar Jackson, Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, all successful teams with quarterbacks making hardly anything. Yep. Now, you know, in, in the case of Allen, he's now making a lot of money. In the case of Jackson and, and Mayfield, there's a decision to make. 
to me, I think there's only probably a half a dozen quarterbacks at most who can who you can be a consistent contender with if they make the most money at the position. And then I think after that, there's a there's a, a, a chasm where if you're paying the Goffs, the Cousins, the Staffords, um, and Matt right on that edge, but like let's throw his name in there. If you're paying a quarterback who's kind of in that second tier or worse, but you're paying him top dollar because the you know the franchise tag has made it such that guys like Mahomes can't make a hundred million a year, and but but the guys like Dak Prescott can make ninety percent of what Mahomes makes. If you if you are in a position where you're paying a good but not great player or worse, almost as much as you're paying Mahomes, it's almost impossible to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that does put him in such a difficult position because you've got a guy that probably gets you to the playoffs. You know, you think you can probably build around, you know him well. And your alternative is to pitch him aside and go fishing again. And, you know, it's fine and good when you got that young guy that might become, even if he doesn't ultimately become, at least you get three years of optimism and belief and attempt to, you know, build him and develop him. But when you don't even know if you have that person, I mean, we've got, you mentioned Mayfield and Jackson, of course, they're the next up to be, to be assessed, but there are a lot of teams without those guys. And so you're asking them to get rid of, it's just, it's a, I'm super sympathetic. You named it as one of the toughest, one of the toughest decisions or analyses in football. I a hundred percent agree. And it's a, it's a human problem. It's a data problem. It's because from a human's perspective, like how do you go, if you're the Ravens, let's say, and let's say your internals, you have the best analytics in the world and your internals say, I, we shouldn't pay Jackson, right? How do you go to your team and say, look, even if you're the MVP of the league, you're not worth a second contract. Like that's a really hard thing to do, like from a human perspective. And so I I don't even pretend to want to solve. That's right. Part part of the job is human. The part of the job is human. There is a fundamentally political feature to running a team, running a locker room. The other problem is also the statistical one, right? So Mitchell Schwartz, who's a former uh, tackle for Kansas City and Cleveland, tweeted something out, which I thought was very intuitively right, which was, if I'm going to pay a quarterback top dollar, I want to know that on third down and six, he's one of the best players in football, and I can trust him to do X, Y, and Z. And friend, wasn't it great how well he he distilled it down to that, and that just captures it. If you could name, if you could distill it down to one thing, that's good. That's pretty good. It was like people know you're going to pass. Can you make that reliably make that pass? Right. And, and what well, interestingly, like we saw Ben Baldwin, uh, uh, mutual friend, uh, friend of the show too. Like he, he tweeted out like the EPA per pass play for quarterbacks on third and six or more for the last three years. And there were, there were the usual suspects, except for there were like some 49ers quarterbacks, like Nick Mullins in there. There was like interesting names. And like I tweeted out the PFF grades, which I think made a little bit more sense. Yeah. Yeah. But the sample size on those plays, and I took a three-year sample, talking about like 400 dropbacks. That's yeah. less than one full season of play for a quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that that's the other part of it. It's not just a human problem. It's also a statistical one in that how much do you – how wide are those error bars after 400 dropbacks? Unbelievably, yeah. Unbelievably. And, and so, Especially because of, it's so de- context-dependent as well. You're not, right. you're not running an experiment on that guy. It's confounded. Everything you see him do is – almost everything is confounded. Correct. Yeah, so it's an extremely hard problem, and, you're, and most of the time these teams are wrong 
for all the reasons you said, which is if you're <laughs> the incentives are just not there, right? Like if you if you're less need and you trade a ton of draft picks with um, Tennessee and get Jared Goff, you're going to want to tr- buy. You're going to want to pay a second contract because that's a trophy on your mantle. You know what I mean? Like I made a move for a quarterback and it worked. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and I understand and I, I get that. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have to. That that's not a that's a good bet, right? And you're not going to have to completely dump that a year later, two years later, like they've had to. It, it so it's a very hard problem. Again, like I said, I don't even think. And I know you just had Josh on. Josh, I think, is right that evaluating quarterbacks from college to pro is an extremely hard problem. I feel that it's not as hard of a problem though as trying to take a quarterback who's good, good enough to win with the cushy circumstances as a rookie deal. And decide if he's good enough to win when perturbations happen, when you don't have resources to, you know, to support him. Yeah. That, that to me is the hardest problem in football. Well, you've really complicated it in a way that makes me very sympathetic to your position. I mean, there, it, because there are these other dimensions, statistically it's hard, analytically it's hard, but then there's other really complicating dimensions. You got to feel for these GMs. Um, even the, you know, even the savvy ones, even the ones with great departments, it's just a, it's a big, hard job. Listen, man, uh, Eric, we got to let you go. I could talk with you for the rest of the afternoon. Really appreciate the chance to do so. Look forward to catching up with you more later in the year. Hope to see what we see on the Wharton campus every now and then. Hope to get you back there soon. Um, Have fun with week one, man. Thanks for having me on, Kate. It's always a pleasure. You guys are the best. Appreciate it. Eric Eager, VP of Research and Development with PFF. You can follow him on Twitter. Great follow, at PFF underscore Eric. That has been... Two hours of sports analytics, another Wharton Moneyball, this one dedicated to the NFL season, about to kick off just in a couple of days. We're recording on Tuesday, go up on Wednesday. I think we're going to see some football on Thursday. Appreciate it for the whole team. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, all in absentia. Maddie Datz, very much not in absentia, making it happen. Appreciate it. And Deion Simpkins, same to you. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports. 